0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Trouble Is. For more information and audio content, visit us at WhitefieldsChurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. We have a baby dedication this morning. You guys like babies? I mean, who? Yeah? All right. Okay, cool. So I'm going to ask the, James and Amy Lee and their family to come forward. And we're going to pray for these guys. As they're doing that, I just want to tell you a few things about why we do this, and then we're going to do it. The purpose behind this is, is kind of multifaceted, right? So Jesus said it was very important that Jesus honored little children. Actually, it's interesting because in the culture of that day, children were not always uh, considered to be—they were kind of considered a nuisance. But in spite of that, Jesus said, no, I want the little children to come to me. And he wanted to bless them, and the children liked to be around him. And so uh, we want to follow in that tradition and say we want to bring the little children to Jesus. But here's the other reason we do this is because we as a church, I want you to know this, that you as a church, we as a church, it is, we don't just tell families, hey, you're on your own, I hope you do a good job raising your kids. But we want to say, hey, we as a church... We are a covenant community and we want to bring your family. We want to covenant with you and bring your family and we want you to bring your children into the church and we want to help you to raise your children in the Lord and we want to uh, keep you accountable and we want you to keep us accountable and say that, you know, we're in this together. And we've got each other's backs, and we're going to keep each other accountable in this so that we do this good and important work of raising our children in the Lord. And it does take a community to do that, and, uh, and so we are so excited to be doing that. And you know what I thought of? Is Jack here? Hey, Jack. Can you come here? Oh, we, we switched to this handheld mic, and uh, I was going to hold the baby, but now I can't. Unless you got it? Well, then I was going to have you hold the mic, but otherwise you can just go back to where you are. <laughs> Okay, cool. Okay, so we have a slide up here that's Eliana James Lee and her parents here. James and Amy Lee and um, part of our church and they brought their family with us. We're so glad that you're here because really this is a family thing. So would you please join me in praying for little Eliana and her parents? Heavenly Father, thank you for James and Amy. We thank you for their desire to know you and walk with you. Thank you for the good work that you've done in their lives of bringing them together, Lord, and now uh, taking them from two and giving them a baby and making them into three as a family. Lord, thank you for this blessing. Lord, we know that your word says that children are a heritage from the Lord, and blessed is a person whose quiver is full of them. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given them this child, and Lord, we pray blessing upon them. We pray blessing upon them as parents. Lord, they need your wisdom to raise this child in your ways, to raise this child uh, in, in a good way. So, Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom. Your word says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them come to you, and you will freely give it to anyone who asks. And so, Lord, we hold on to that promise, and we remember that. And we ask, Lord, give James and Amy wisdom as they raise Eliana. Lord, would you also give them spiritual wisdom to raise her in your ways. And, Lord, we as a church right now, as we pray, we say we commit to coming alongside of them that they're not in this alone. We commit to coming in alongside of them, helping them to raise her and raise her in your ways. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that truly that would not just be nice words, but that that would be manifested in reality in the years to come. But thank you for their, their wonderful family here with them, supporting them. Lord, thank you that you blessed them in that way. And I pray that the family would just be blessed in having Eliana in their lives. Lord, and that you would bless her as she grows up and as she grows, Lord, that she would walk in your ways and that, Lord, she would be pleasing in your sight. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alrighty. So if you have your Bible with you, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, book of Genesis chapter 50. It's the last chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 50. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app simply because in there we put some live notes that you can follow along with. And in this series we're in right now, that's more important than usual because we put a lot of extra stuff in there that might not be on the screen. Um, but we're in this series right now called The Trouble Is, in which we're addressing some of the more difficult questions that people ask, the things that when we ask people, what do you struggle with when it comes to embracing Christianity or believing Christianity? These are the responses that they gave, and we're responding to those and hoping to uh, give some answers and remove some of those perceived barriers. So let's begin by reading our text this morning, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Our topic, by the way, is suffering and evil today. Okay, So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did against him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil against you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? And check this out, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we, we ask that as we study it this morning, as we get into it, Lord, you give us spiritual insight, that we would really understand what it is that you're speaking to us through it, and Lord, that we would be able to apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we pray for, for uh, anybody here who's struggling with questions or doubts, Lord, may, may some of those questions be answered today, we ask, but in everything, may we be moved closer to you and closer to embracing you as our Lord and as our Savior and embracing the good news of the gospel for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in a series called The Trouble Is. And in this series, uh, what, we, what we usually do at Whitefields, actually, is that we, go, we like to go through books of the Bible. So recently, we just finished a study through the book of Hebrews. in the New Testament is a longer study. And starting in two weeks' time, we're going to begin another Book study. We're going to be studying the letter to the Romans, which is one of the greatest books in the Bible. We're very excited about that. We're going to go through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But right now, we're taking six weeks to do something which is a bit abnormal for us, but also very important. It's important that sometimes we take a break and do stuff like what we're doing. What we're doing is we're taking six weeks to address and answer some of the toughest questions and the biggest issues that people have when it comes to Christianity, things that people really struggle with. And in preparation for this series, what we did is we took a poll. We took a poll online and we asked everybody we knew to share it and we asked people what is it that creates the biggest hurdle for you in embracing Christianity and in this series we're addressing those things that people said these are the real issues that I'm struggling with when it comes to faith in Jesus or embracing Christianity and really our hope with this series is that through this we might actually remove some of those things that people said they think this is a barrier a hesitation so that people can confidently and wholeheartedly put their faith in Jesus so so far we have have looked at four things. So this is week number five of six. We've looked at the Bible. You know, is the Bible trustworthy? Hasn't it been changed? You know, does it have a dubious history? Can we really trust it? So we talked about that. That was our first week. Next week, we talked about hypocrisy. Some people said, it's not that I don't know Christians. The problem is I do know Christians and they're hypocrites. I don't like them. And I wonder, can Christianity really be true if these are the kind of people it creates? So we talked about that. Then we talked about science. Does science bury God? We talked about that two weeks ago. And last week, we we talked about the Christ myth, which was, a per, for me, a, a particularly interesting one. If you missed any of those, or if you're interested in sharing them with other people, we want you to know that you can always listen to all of our teachings online on our website, whitefieldschurch.com. You can share them. We have a podcast. Follow us on social media. We would love for you to not only consume that content, but share it with others who might benefit from it, because we believe that these are some really important and helpful things that we've been talking about these last couple weeks. Next week, we're going to be wrapping up the series by talking about exclusivity and hell. People ask the question, how can it, how can that be that Christianity claims to be the only way? Or or how can it be that a loving God would send people to hell? We're going to address those questions and see what answers uh, the Bible leads us to. And then again, after that, we're going to study uh, the book of Romans. But this week, we're looking at a topic which ranked very high in our polls. It ranks high in all polls that are done like ours, which ask people why they struggle with Christianity. And that is the existence of suffering and evil in the world. So let's talk about this. The the problem is that suffering and evil exist in the world. So in a recent national poll, uh, people were asked, if you could ask God only one question and you knew for sure that he would answer you, what question would you ask him? And overwhelmingly, the most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world or some form of that, Like, Why do good things happen to bad people? Why, Why do things happen to innocent people? You know, not long ago, on a personal level, a friend contacted me kind of in the middle of the day. She was very upset and she said, look, I'm sorry to bother you. I don't usually do this, but I need to talk to a pastor like right now because I'm struggling with something. See, she had read a news article about a child who had been beheaded, brutally murdered, and she asked me, if God is sovereign explain this to me. If God is sovereign, how can he allow things like this to happen? She said, I'm really struggling with this. I'm honestly having doubts because of this, because I don't understand how it's possible that God could be good and God could be sovereign and yet he allows stuff like this to happen and she said look the Christians I know they they all they all say things like you know oh we prayed and and God helped us get this new car or you see like sports figures and they pray God help me get a touchdown great but she said how can it be that God apparently intervenes and cares about touchdowns and new cars but there are people dying of cancer and children being abused and yet God doesn't intervene in those situations and prevent those things from happening how is that possible how how is that true then is God truly good in that case and as a pastor I gotta tell you I I deal with this question a lot you know recently I've been doing this call-in show that's like half the calls I get is explain to me why why this happened to me or what's why how this can be there's a Scottish philosopher named David Hume and this is about uh, over 100 years ago, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher, he summarized the problem in this way. Here's what he said. He said, the existence of evil and suffering in the world creates a very big problem for Christianity, and here's why. He says, because the Bible asserts three things. Well, it asserts let's say two things. The Bible asserts first of all that there is a God, secondly that this God is good and loving, and thirdly, so there really are three things. Okay, thirdly, it also asserts that not only is there a God and that God is good and loving, but it also asserts that God is all-powerful and sovereign. And he says therefore, if evil exists, which it obviously does, evil and suffering exists, then that means there are only three options. And number 1, That God wants to prevent evil or he would like to prevent evil, but he can't. In which case, God is impotent. In other words, he is not all-powerful. The second option is that God is able to prevent evil, but he doesn't, in which case, David Hume said, then God is malevolent, which means he's not good. He's actually a bad God. And the third option, he said, is that there just is no God. And and that's why bad things happen, because there is no God and everything's random and nothing really, really has any meaning at the end of the day. But here's what David Hume said. He said, no matter which of these three options you choose, it's not good. The existence of evil and suffering in the world means you have to reject what the Bible says about God. Now my question for you is, is that true? Was he correct in this conclusion that he made? And my response, of course, is, I don't believe that he was. And this morning, I want to show you why that is. I want to show you why his position actually falls apart, why it's actually illogical. Because this position, he summarized it well, but a lot of us have that exact same thought. And I want to show you that Christianity gives us the only truly good and satisfying answer to the problems of suffering and evil. So before we go on, we've got to recognize, first of all, that for many of us, in fact, maybe for most of us, this is not just a philosophical question. It's not hypothetical. It's not just theoretical. It's deeply personal. For some of you, it might go back to when you were a child. For some of you, it's something you've experienced in your life. You've experienced tragedy or loss or abandonment or abuse. I talked to somebody again on the radio this week who said, Look, I know that the Bible says that God loves me but I just don't believe it. And I said, well, why don't you believe it? And so I don't believe it because of the things that have happened to me. I just can't believe that God is really good and that God loves me. And I think that if we're really honest, we have to admit this, that oftentimes our personal pain is what motivates our private convictions. It's our personal pain which motivates our private convictions. Oftentimes it's the stuff that has happened to you that causes you to say, this is why I struggle to believe in God. If you ask the average person why they are skeptical about Christianity, most people, the objections they give you are not going to be intellectual or theoretical. They're going to be personal. They're going to be saying things like, I don't understand why God let this happen. I don't understand why you let it happen to me or to this person I love if God is really good, if God really loves me. And maybe you've experienced tragedy in your life personally, and or maybe you haven't experienced tragedy, but you look around at the world and you say, oh, all this violence, all this hatred, all this suffering that's going on, and you say, really, is it true that God is good, and yet he allows things like this to happen? So when we address this question, I want you to understand this. It's, it's not just an issue of the head. It's not just theory, but for all of us, this is an issue of the heart. It gets down to not just theoretical things. It's very deeply personal, but it's not just a personal issue. It's also a biblical issue. See, the Bible doesn't shy away from this topic at all. It actually faces it head-on It addresses it directly and it has a lot to say about it. In fact, you could even say that apart from apart from telling us who God is and what he's like, this is the second most thing that the Bible deals with. And it actually flows out from the first. So if you ask what's the Bible about? Well, first of all, the Bible's about who God is, what he's like, but flowing from that comes another question. Because if the Bible is or if God is who the Bible says he is, if he's good and loving and all powerful and all knowing, then that begs the next question, well, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? And the Bible deals with this. One of the main key issues the Bible deals with. In fact, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. So scholars believe that that was the first book to be written in history chronologically. Job was the first book of the Bible to be written. And in the story of Job, here's what happens. We're introduced to a man named Job who is a wealthy person. He's a successful businessman, he has a nice family, things are going great for him. And then in one day, he loses it all. His his children die, his livestock dies, his family business fails, he loses everything in one day. The only thing he doesn't lose is his wife, and she's not exactly a blessing. Like, her advice to him is, well, I guess God hates you. You should just kill yourself, right? Thanks a lot, honey. Very encouraging. And then, for most of the book, though, the majority of the book is this conversation that Job has with his friends. And Job and his friends are having this conversation which they are trying to make sense of this. Why did this happen? I mean, why why do things like this happen to people? And the main thing Job's friends keep saying is, hey, Job, everybody knows this is the way it works in." the world this is the way it works in life good things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people if you're a good person And you do good things, then good things will happen. And if you're a bad person, you do bad things, and bad things will happen. So they said, hey, Job, look, we thought you were a good person, but apparently we don't know you very well. Apparently, you have some skeletons in the closet. You've got some secrets and some dark things that we didn't know about, because look at these things that are happening to you. That wouldn't happen unless you had done some pretty bad things. And Job protests, and he's like, no, 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 I swear, I promise, I'm not a bad person. I haven't done bad things. Uh, This doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why this is happening to me. And this goes on. On for quite a while until finally God interrupts their conversation and he speaks directly to Job and here's what God says he says Job hold your horses for a second this is not how it works you, you, you haven't got this right this is not how it works it's not a system of rewards and punishments based on behavior rather here's the deal there is a God and he's saying I am that God right he said there's a God who is working out his plan for all of the cosmos but also for you individually and personally. And God says, and you know what? When I do things, I don't ask your permission. I don't run it by you first to find out if you're cool with it, right? Like I don't always ask your permission before I do things. Furthermore, I don't always have to explain myself to you. I don't have to tell you why I do what I do. You know what what the end game is with all of this? I just do it. But here's what I will tell you, Job. You can be assured of this. I am a good God. I care deeply about you. And I'm working all things together for good and for the accomplishment of my good and perfect plan. If you go to the very first pages of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, uh, it tells us that God created the world, and and he created it as an artist, as a loving artist, and he created it, and when he created it, it was very good. He looked at everything he created and said, it is good. But then, not even three chapters in, right, basically as soon as we get done, he gets done creating the world, then all of a sudden, in the third chapter of the Bible, and then all the way to the end, we see that evil and suffering have come into the world, and and nobody's immune to it. It touches all of our lives, and the Bible tells us that evil and suffering, they, they were not part of God's original design. They're not part of God's plan. They are actually intrusions. They are foreign elements that have come in and caused corruption and harm, and here's the, here, but here's the really crazy thing and thing that we need to know, and that's this. The evil and suffering is not just something outside there. It's not just something out there that exists, right? It's not just that evil and suffering exists out there in the world. But see, evil and suffering has affected us. It has, it has worked its way into the very fabric of our being. It has corrupted each and every one of us, right? In other words, it's not just that bad things happen to us. It's that sometimes we do bad things. It's not just that sometimes people hurt us. It's that sometimes we do hurt to other people. And so the whole Bible is this story of how God is working out this great plan in history by which he is going to end suffering and evil once and for all, but without ending us. See, because God could just end it all, but in order to do so, he would just have to clear the slate. So how, the question is, how is God going to end evil and suffering without ending us? Because it's wrapped up inside of us, it's part of our, it's part of our being, And that's the whole reason, by the way, that Jesus came. It was because of this problem of evil and suffering. And the promise and the hope of Christianity is something we call the gospel, which literally means the good news. The good news that Jesus came, and by his death, by his resurrection, he defeated death, and we get to be partakers in that. We get to receive that gift of his grace. And for all who do receive that gift, the day is coming when suffering and death will be no more, and all things will be made new. Now, maybe you ask the question, though, you say, okay, yeah, I get that, but answer me this, why did God even allow that to happen in the first place? I mean, couldn't he have just stopped it before it even began, and then we'd all be better off, right? Well, let me tell you, there are two important factors that the Bible tells us that we have to keep in mind in this regard, okay? Why did God ever allow this to happen in the first place? Number one, you need to remember that God is completely in control, the word we use for that, by the way, in theological terms, we say that God is sovereign, right? Like a king. God is sovereign. He's in complete control. And yet, within his sovereignty, within, under his control, under the umbrella of his control, he has allowed a space for freedom, right? And the word we use for that, again, is sovereignty. So God's completely in control, but within his sovereignty, he has allowed a sphere of freedom. But here's the second thing, and and this this is what it is. It's that in order for God to reveal his glory and his love, he played out this drama of salvation, You see, through this drama of redemption, of sin and, and salvation and Jesus coming into the world through sending Jesus to save us, God revealed himself to us and invited us into a relationship with him that we could never have had otherwise. We come to know God in a way that we never would have known him as who he is if this, hadn't, if this drama had not played out, if evil had not come into the world. He invites us into a relationship with him as Savior, as Lord, which we would have never experienced if this had not happened. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this story of Joseph, and we're going to see how this story illustrates this point very vividly. But before we go any further, I want to take a second. We're talking about the Christian response to suffering, right? But let's take a minute and let's say, what are some of the alternatives? What what do other worldviews and religions say when it comes to this question of evil and suffering? Because here's the thing, evil and suffering isn't just a Christian problem. This is a human problem. Like no matter what you believe, no matter what your worldview, you have to deal with the issue of sin and evil, and you have To give a response. Why is it there? What is the solution? And so let's look at some of the other alternatives, how other faiths, worldviews deal with this question of evil and suffering. So we'll begin by looking at Buddhism. Okay, Buddhism is very popular, of course, in the East, but it's increasingly popular in the West, here where we live, very fashionable to be into Buddhism. And here's what Buddhism says: here's how you deal with the evil and suffering that exists in the world, and you deal with it through detachment. You deal with it through detachment. They would say, you need to get to the point, and you work on this through your meditation, what you need to do is you need to get to the point where you just don't care anymore, where you just don't care, where you're emotionally detached from everyone and everything in the world. In other words, they would all, they use this phrase, they say, you need to kill desire, that's how you reach transcendence, that's how you reach it, is by killing desire and detaching yourself emotionally from everything and everyone in the world. In other words, for example, let's say you purchased or built your dream house. It's your dream, you get it, but then interest rates go up or you lose your job or whatever and you're not able to pay the mortgage payments on your house. So you lose your dream house and what does that cause you to feel? It causes you to feel sadness. Buddhism would say, see, there's the problem. You were too attached to your house. You wouldn't have been sad if you wouldn't have been so attached to it. Now, that's all well and good when it comes to houses and cars and mobile phones, but what about when it comes to people? That's actually a very, not only destructive, it's a disastrous advice when it comes to people. Think about if you apply that same logic to your family to children, to to other people, to relationships. Just be completely detached emotionally, right? Transcendent. You're gonna kill all desire, kill all emotional attachment. That would be a disaster, both for you and for those who love you or those who are connected to you. So this is one way of dealing with evil. Just detach yourself emotionally. But again, I wanna tell you, first of all, I don't think that's possible. And secondly, even if it were possible, you should never do that. That's not even desirous. Okay, secondly, let's talk about Hinduism. Hinduism teaches... Karma, you know, what goes around comes around. Now, we talk about karma quite glibly in our culture, right? We say things like, hey, my, uh, your karma ran over my dogma and things like that. Like we say, hey, that person, is, they got what they deserved or karma's gonna catch up with you or I'm sure that karma will repay me for the good things that I've done. But if you really think about it, karma is a very dark teaching. It's a very cruel teaching. And I, I wanna give you an illustration. I heard a story from a guy who went to India and he saw, you know, as, as you would see in India, he saw incredible poverty. He saw people begging in the streets. And at one point, he saw this woman with a baby, and she was begging. And so he said, I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to help this lady out. I'm going to give her whatever she needs. I'm going to, you know, give her some money or whatever. And the guy he was with, the driver that he was with, told him, hey, you, no, you, what are you thinking? You can't do that. And he said, why? This lady needs help, and I want to help her. And the guy said, no, 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 you, you need to understand Though the reason she is suffering is because of things that she did in a previous life. And if you interfere, if you improve her situation, you will end her suffering, and then she'll have to suffer again in another life. She'll have to go through this whole thing all over again. So you should just let her suffer it out right now, and then maybe in the next life things will be better for her. See, what karma says is something that's really quite cruel. And, and here's what it says. It says, when bad things happen to you, it's because you deserve it. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Are you going to look a child in the eye, a child who's been abused, and say, you deserve that? Are you going to look someone who's been raped in the eye and say, you know why that happened to you? You totally deserved it. You, you have only yourself to blame for that. Absolutely not. That is an evil thing to say, right? Are you going to look someone who's been uh, abused in a relationship in the eye and say, you know what? You deserve that. No, Christianity says, no way. Christianity actually deals with the badness of bad things. It doesn't trivialize them. It doesn't blame you for them. It says some things are just bad. Some things, there is such a thing as evil, and it's not okay, and it's not good, and you don't deserve it. So no one deserves to be raped. No one deserves to be abused. Children do not deserve to die of cancer. And the Bible tells us that God looks upon the evil in this world, and it grieves him to the heart. In other words, he's emotionally attached. He doesn't ever say, you deserve that. No, what he looks at, he says, he looks at the suffering and evil in the world, and he says, it's not right. It's not right, and it grieves him to the heart. And the Bible tells us that God is so grieved, in fact, by the brokenness of this world that he took the most dramatic action even imaginable. He came to this earth himself. He walked on our streets. He partook in our suffering. He wept and he cried. He experienced heartbreak. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by his friends. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be loved one moment and hated the next. He knows what it's like to suffer pain. You know the word excruciating in Latin, literally means from the cross. From the cross he has experienced excruciating pain. God knows what it's like. God the Father knows what it's like to lose a child. You see Jesus suffered in our place and as a result one day suffering and death will end forever. That is the hope that Christianity gives. Now let's talk about the new age. Okay so there are a lot of strands in the New Age. I know it's a very very multifaceted thing. But here's one strand of the New Age. It says that positive thinking overcomes negative reality. Positive thinking overcomes negative reality. So whether it's positive thinking or positive confession, they would say if you If you say positive things and you don't say or think negative things, then good things will happen and you will be able to overcome your negative reality. Again, think about this. Where does that put the responsibility? Where does that put the weight of responsibility for what happens to you? It puts it all on you. In other words, if bad things happen to you, you have no one to blame but yourself. You must have had negative thoughts or said negative words. And I want you to see, Jesus addresses this idea clearly. This idea that Bad things happen to you because you deserve it or because you earned it. And one time, for example, we read in the Gospel of John chapter nine, Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they, they come across this man who has been blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, they say, Rabbi, who sinned? Did this man sin, or did his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed him. In other words, Jesus was teaching that this man's blindness was not a punishment for something that he had done, nor that his parents had done. Rather, his blindness was an occasion for God to be glorified through redeeming and healing that which was broken. Now let's talk finally, this is our last one, let's talk about atheism. Because atheists atheists would say, well, you know, here's the proof that there is no God. Look at all the evil and suffering in the world. A good God wouldn't allow that. So here's what atheism says. They say suffering is completely meaningless because life is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a natural random event. It has no big meaning And they would say, not only is is, uh, suffering uh, natural and normal, but they would say evil itself. When people do evil things, that's natural. It's normal. In fact, in many cases, it's actually completely justifiable if it helps you survive, because in the end, it's all about the survival of the fittest. Maybe you remember this story, it's 20 years ago now, in 1997, a girl named Melissa Drexler, American high school student, she was a high school senior, and she was 18 years old. How many of you remember this story? It's the story of the prom mom. Here's what she did. She was 18 years old, and she was nine months pregnant, but she had been able to keep her pregnancy a secret from her parents and from her friends. And so Melissa Drexler goes to her high school prom. She's nine months pregnant. At the prom, she goes into labor. She feels the baby coming. She goes into a bathroom stall. It's a true story, and I warn you, it's it's sad and graphic, but she goes into this bathroom stall. She gives birth in the stall. She cuts the umbilical cord, strangles the baby to death, puts it in the trash can, and then goes back out on the dance floor and dances the rest of the night and goes and hangs out with her friends. Now, of course, the police found out about it. She was arrested. And it hit the news and people were were all up in arms. People were saying, you know, this is evil. This is bad. How could somebody do this? But there was a man named Steven Pinker. Now we've talked over the last couple of weeks about, you know, the new atheism, this kind of movement, Richard Dawkins. Steven Pinker's in that group. Christopher Hitchens, Steven Pinker, Richard Dawkins. So Steven Pinker, he's a psychologist. um, You know, he's a well-known atheist and evolutionary thinker. And he wrote an article in response to this event in the New York Times called Why They Kill Their Newborns. And basically what he was trying Trying to explain was that from an evolutionary standpoint, what this girl did was totally normal and it was perfectly acceptable. And here's, here's what he said. Now, I'll kind of give you what he said and I'll, I'll try and bring it down to our level for us so we can, we can kind of make sense of it, right? Here's what he said. He says, when it comes to indep- being independent creatures, mammals require more, much more investment from their mothers than other animals do. And humans are extreme even among mammals. And then he says, birth is really just an arbitrary line that we have created. Other mammals walk and take care of themselves the moment that they come out of the womb, but humans don't become self-sufficient for much longer than most mammals. And, And many mammals kill their offspring if that offspring is sick or deformed or in any way is a detriment to their existence. Okay, did you catch what he's saying? Let me just sum it up for you. Some people say, here's what he's saying, some people say, you know, like Christians say, that life begins at conception. Other people in our society say that life begins at birth, but from an evolutionary standpoint, you could argue that life doesn't actually begin until you're able to take care of yourself and be an independent person. So therefore, it's perfectly acceptable for a mother to kill her child if the child cannot function independently, and the existence of the child makes the mother's existence more difficult. Now, let me ask you a few questions, especially those of you who have kids. Number one, any of you moms out there, has having kids made your life more difficult? Maybe, right? Like, you're like, I don't know. Answers absolutely in every way. Like, that's the very definition of what a child is and what they do. I used to have money and free time, and now I have kids, right? And, like, it's like that's just what they do. They make your existence difficult. Next question, at what age is a child able to fend for themselves in the wild, so to say, or take care of themselves and be an independent, functioning individual? Is it five years old? Can you leave a five-year-old out in the wild without a parent? What ha- Probably they wouldn't make it, okay? So maybe let's move that number up. Maybe it's 10 years old. Maybe it's 15 years old. Some of you who are a little bit older are like, dude, I have a kid. He's 30 years old. He lives in my basement, and he is still not able to take care of himself. Not to mention, what about people with disabilities who are never going to be able to take care of themselves? What about them? According to this assessment, if a child isn't able to take care of themselves and their existence makes their mother's existence more difficult, then it's totally fine to just kill them if it makes your life easier. Do you? Are you shocked by that? You should be shocked by that. And many people who read this article were completely appalled by it. They're saying, how could... The New York Times even published something like this. But here's what I want you to see. This is where this thinking leads. You keep going down this line. This is where it goes. Atheism, a purely naturalistic worldview, says this. Suffering is meaningless because life is meaningless. And you may feel that your life has meaning and value, and that's really cute, but it's just not true. You're just the result of a random process, natural process. And because of that, at the end of the day, in all honesty, your life is no more important than that of a rock. And so there is no such thing as evil, they would say. if, if For example, if two lions get in a fight in the, in the Sahara or wherever, the Serengeti or wherever they live, they get in a fight, you know, in the wild, and one kills the other one, we don't say that's evil, we just say that's natural. In other words, that's the atheistic, naturalistic worldview. And to contrast that, Christianity, the Bible says... No, we don't agree with that, right? Like, life does have meaning. There is such a thing as evil, and it's not okay. And suffering is not just random and meaningless. The very fact, by the way, if suffering and evil bothers you, that's a sign, It points to the fact that there is meaning in this life, that there is a God. It points to God because it points to the fact that this is not all just random, meaningless chance. There is a purpose. There is a design behind it. So let's talk about this final point, the redemption of suffering. This morning we began by reading the end of the story of Joseph uh, in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story begins back in chapter 37, and the story of Joseph takes up over a quarter of the book of Genesis. So over a quarter of the book of Genesis, 26% of the book of Genesis, is consumed with the story of Joseph, which means that more time is devoted to talking about Joseph and what happened to him than is devoted to talking about creation of the world, than is devoted to talking about Abraham or any other figure in the book of Genesis. More time is devoted to Joseph. Why? Because of what Joseph's story is about. Because it's our story. So Joseph came from a dysfunctional family, lots of drama, lots of trauma. He had 12 brothers. He was one of 12 brothers from two wives. His dad had 12 boys from two wives, and his dad played favorites, both with the wives and with the brothers. And so when Joseph was 17 years old, he was the second youngest. When Joseph was 17 years old, his dad made him the manager of the family business. In other words, he was in charge of managing all of his 10 older brothers. And like many 17-year-olds, Joseph didn't have a ton of grace or uh, Humility when it came to managing his older brothers and dealing with this huge responsibility that was placed on his shoulders. So one day, Joseph's brothers, they take their sheep out, because they're shepherds, they take their sheep out to graze in this place called Dothan. Dothan is like this uninhabited, desolate place. And so Joseph says, Okay, well, I don't see my brothers. He wakes up one morning, nobody's around, I better go find them. So he asks some people, where'd my brothers go? They said they went to Dothan. So he goes out there and you know he's going out there to boss them around, tell them what to do, maybe make some jokes about how he's the boss, and his brothers see him coming from afar off, and they begin talking. They say, you know, I mean, gosh, there is nobody out here. If something were to happen to him, you know, by accident, nobody would know. We could uh, get rid of him, be free from him forever, and maybe it started out as a joke, but pretty soon it wasn't a joke. They were serious, And they decided, let's kill him. We're going to hide his body. And what we'll say is that he must have got attacked by animals and we found his body. And and we just bring back some, some ripped up clothes and say that, you know, the animal attacked him and this is all that we found. But the older brother, he says, no, we can't do that. The oldest brother says, no, we can't do that. I'm not going in on this. So they say, okay, well, fine, we'll make a compromise. We'll sell him into slavery. We won't kill him. We'll sell him into slavery. But we'll tell our dad the same story. Got attacked by animals. He's dead. End of story. So Joseph comes along and he's like, hey guys, you working hard or you're hardly working? Hope I don't have to write any of you guys up and tell dad to dock your wages. And they're like, that's it, we're done with you. And they take Joseph, they throw him in a pit, they tear off his clothes, they throw him in this pit. It says later on that when Joseph was in the pit, he was crying out for them to rescue him, for someone to help him, and no help came. His brothers, they sell him into slavery. They tell his dad that he's dead. Joseph's taken to Egypt. He's sold in the slave market. He's purchased by a man, a wealthy man named Potiphar, and he works as this guy's house servant in his house. He's doing stuff around the house. Now, Potiphar's rarely at home. He's always at work, and so it's just Joseph and Potiphar's wife spending a lot of time in the house together, and at some point, Potiphar's wife starts kind of coming on to him and Joseph's like, no, I'm not going there. I'm not gonna do that. It's wrong on so many levels. But one day she corners him, right? She makes this move and he runs away. And she's so upset that he's rejecting her advances that she tells everybody that Joseph tried to rape her. And so he gets thrown in jail for something that he didn't even do. And he spends years in prison. You just look at it and say, injustice, that's unfair. It's suffering. He gets thrown in prison. Finally, he gets out. And in this crazy set of providential circumstances, Joseph ends up working for the Pharaoh. He interprets a dream, which leads to him coming up with a plan to save them from a famine. And during this famine, other people from other countries began coming to Egypt because they've got grain. And so the Egyptian economy is booming and other people are happy because they're not starving to death. And so everybody loves Joseph, right? But lo and behold, who comes to Egypt to buy grain but Joseph's very own brothers, the same ones who attacked him and threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. In the meantime, 20 years has gone by. 20 years. Of slavery, 20 years of prison, 20 years of evil and suffering in his life, and now things are finally starting to go well for Joseph, but he's got a ton of wounds. He's got a ton of hurts from what's been done to him in the past, but here's what he says to his brothers, and this is what we read, uh, one of the verses we read at the beginning. He says at the end of the story, he says, look, they're like, we did evil, we did evil, we're sorry, and he says, look, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive just as they are today. You see, by Joseph being in Egypt, he literally saved hundreds of thousands of lives. He even saved the lives of his own family. And here's what's crazy that prior to that happening, God had given a promise that from this family would one day come the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who's going to save everybody in the world from their sins, Jesus Christ, right? He's going to come through their family. So think about this. If Joseph hadn't been where he was when he was there, then hundreds of thousands of people would have died. And not only that, but God's entire plan to bring salvation to the world and save the world from sin and evil and suffering and death, it would have been foiled. It would have been destroyed and ruined, but because he's there, because he went through all that he went through, now it all works out incredibly. And here's what's really interesting about the story of Joseph. Here's what gets me every time. In the, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we see God working in these incredible, miraculous ways, right? Like, there's nothing, and God speaks, and boom, stuff happens. And then God shows up, and he, he meets with people, and he speaks to people directly. But then you get to the story of Joseph, and there's just silence. Like, there's no more miracles. None. None. There's no miracles in the, in the sense of like flashy things that you can see. God never speaks to Joseph the whole time that we know of. God never speaks to Joseph like he speaks to other people in the Bible. In fact, in chapter 37, that's the chapter where Joseph gets thrown in the pit and sold into slavery. Here's what's crazy. The name of God, like the word God, is not even mentioned once. This is the Bible. This is the book where God gets to talk about himself. All these terrible things happening, and God isn't even mentioned. And you know what that does? It makes you, when you read that, you start to wonder. You start to ask the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? But isn't that the question that all of us are asking? Isn't that the question that we're all asking? Where is God when tragedy strikes? Where is God when when evil and bad stuff happens? And the story of Joseph answers that question in a really incredible way. What it tells us is this, that with God, silence is not absence. Silence is not absence. And sometimes when it seems that God is the most absent, that's when he's actually doing his most profound work. You see, do you remember, again, you might have noticed I stressed the name of the place where Joseph got thrown in the pit. Do you remember what it was? Dothan. He got thrown in the pit in this place called Dothan. Now, you can easily read over that and be like, you know, it's just another one of those place names that I can barely pronounce, and I'm never going to need to know that again. Kind of like trigonometry. Anyway, just joking. Here's the thing, though. Here's why you do need trigonometry uh, for certain things. And you need to know Dothan. And here's why. Because Dothan is mentioned in two places in the Bible. It's mentioned there, where Joseph gets sold into slavery, thrown in a pit, all that. It's mentioned one other time in the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha the prophet is in this town, this uninhabited place called Dothan, and the king of Syria is trying to murder him. And so he calls out to God in Dothan. He says, God, save me, rescue me. And God does a miracle and saves him with these chariots of fire. You remember the whole chariots of fire thing? That's where it comes from. And so God saves him in this miracle, this chariots of fire, this miraculous thing. So I want you to think about this. Compare those two stories. Same city, same Bible, same God, similar situation. A guy's in trouble, and he asks for help. He asks to be rescued and saved. In Elisha's case, God sweeps down and does a miracle and rescues him. But in Joseph's case, Joseph's crying out, same town, same place, same God, same Bible, and nothing happens. Just silence, right? Like, God, help me, and nothing happens. And God doesn't rescue him. There's just silence. And Joseph becomes a slave. He goes to jail. All this bad stuff happens. So much suffering and injustice. And yet, God was actively at work in everything that happened to Joseph. We find that out at the end of the story. And what the story of Joseph tells us is that the existence of a good and loving God, the existence of evil and suffering, those things are not mutually exclusive. Both are true. God is good, loving, and powerful, and there is evil and suffering in the world. One of the great promises that the Bible gives us is in Romans 8, 28, where it says this, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what that means for us is that sometimes in our lives, like Joseph, God does his greatest work Not in spite of our suffering, but actually through our suffering. Sometimes even because of our suffering. And that's why the Bible gives us a very unique perspective on suffering to the point at where the Bible actually tells us to rejoice in our suffering. That that seems a bit odd at first, doesn't it? To rejoice in our suffering and our trials. It, It tells us why. It says, Because with God, your suffering is never wasted. Your suffering is never wasted. Now that doesn't mean that every cloud has a silver lining. It doesn't mean that everything happens for a reason and you're always gonna find out eventually what that reason is. You may not. But the fact is this, suffering will never leave you spiritually neutral. It will never leave you spiritually neutral. Either you will respond to suffering by moving closer to God, or you'll respond to suffering by moving farther away from God. And here's what I wanna tell you in closing. If evil and suffering have touched your life, And if it hasn't, it will. So you still need to listen. Let let me remind you of two things. Number one, moving away from God doesn't actually take away your suffering, does it? Like it doesn't actually solve anything to move away from God in the midst of your pain that you feel. To turn your back on God in the midst of your hurt doesn't actually fix anything. As we've seen, the existence of God and the existence of evil and suffering, these things are not mutually incompatible with each other. They both exist at the same time. The very fact that we even think in terms of evil and suffering points us to the fact that there's a God who exists. And the second thing is this, only in Jesus can you have hope for redemption, for for an actual end to suffering, because Jesus suffered for us. That's what it tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, that he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, We esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. If there was ever anyone who suffered unjustly, it was Jesus Christ. He suffered as a result of what we did. He suffered so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and made clean. He didn't deserve it, but he did it, and the Bible says that he did it because he loves you. And as a result of what he did, this is the promise that the Bible gives us at the very end of this grand story of redemption and how God is dealing with the pain and suffering in the world. Here's what it says. It says that one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things will have passed away and behold he makes all things new. That's the hope we have in Jesus. That's the hope of the ultimate redemption of suffering that Jesus entered into our suffering and we are redeemed through his suffering. And that promise can be yours today if you will receive the gift of God's grace to you. So I'm gonna ask you to stand right now and we're gonna pray and, and receive that gift of God's grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus, you came and you suffered the ultimate injustice on our behalf out of love. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of redemption And Lord, right now, just corporately, I wanna say, Lord, we receive this. I pray if there's anybody here who individually says, you know what, I've never done that. I've never received that. I can see why it's good, but I've never put down my yes. Lord, would today be the day when they do that? When they step across the line and they say, you know what, this isn't just true in theory. This is true for me personally. And today I receive it and I receive God's grace. I pray that that would be the case for all of us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.